Well, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 as we continue our series in the life and theology of the Apostle Paul. I'll read uh, beginning in the second half of verse 19 through to 22, although we'll be taking a look at the whole chapter. This is God's holy and inerrant word. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his, this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Father, I pray now as we gather here to hear you speak to us about who your son is and what he's accomplished in your apostle's life and how that applies to us, that you would give us ears to hear. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last week our sermon was on the conversion story of the Apostle Paul. And so this week I thought in order to kind of introduce this section of the passage, I would share a portion of my testimony and how I was saved. And, I, and I'm doing this because it actually kind of fits the sermon, as you'll see in a moment. Without going into much detail, I don't want to do that here, and some of you already heard some of these things. I do remember the days and weeks just prior to becoming a Christian. I was living with a friend. I was working at his father's pizzeria, um, and let's just say I was living my best pagan life. Uh, I was not a Christian, and it was obvious I did not want to live like a Christian. And then I was introduced to Christy, and she invited me to church. And all of a sudden, to the surprise of my roommate um, and the other men I worked with at the pizzeria, I began reading the Bible. Uh, and a month and a half later, after attending church maybe six or seven times, I became a Christian. Now, my conversion wasn't as radical as the Apostle Paul's, but it felt that way to me. I, I, I still went out with my friends, but I was telling people about Jesus rather than getting drunk. Um, I talked about Jesus a lot. Believe me, my friends were getting annoyed. They, they attempted an intervention. <laughs> they, they were calling me Drusus. Um, in order to mock me, uh, but I kept on speaking up. The, the problem was I didn't really know much. I can remember even the night after being saved, calling up my friend who was at college, and I said, I believed in Jesus, but I don't know what that means now. Uh, it was all still a little bit confusing, and it, of course I understood the basics, the gist of the story, that you're a sinner uh, you're going to hell unless you repent of that sin and believe in Jesus. You have to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. But that's basically all I knew. I was taught by Christy. I was taught by her family early on the, the important central things, that Jesus is God and he came to earth and died for sinners so that we could be forgiven by God. Well, as the days and weeks and years uh, went on, I, I learned much more about who Jesus is and what he wanted me to do. And I got saved January of 1988, and in September of 1989, I began attending Bible college. Uh, 
um, where I was taught all the basics of the faith, all the fundamentals, all the, the important truths. I graduated in 1991. It was about three years after I was saved, and it was then that I began full-time ministry. Now, I share that side of the story of my conversion because in many ways it does resemble, in a very small way actually, the Apostle Paul's story. As we learned last week, why Paul was on his way to Damascus, remember this light shone, he was thrown off his horse, he falls to the ground, and he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul at the time said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, in Acts chapter 22, we're told that Paul asked another question. He asked the question, who are you, Lord? But after discovering who Jesus is, he asked him, well, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Now, those two questions, who are you, Lord, and what shall I do, Lord, are fundamentally what I asked uh, myself when I first got saved. Who is Jesus? And, and now what am I to do? It was, I was a little unclear, uh, but I began to understand the answers to that question the days and months and years as they went by. Those two questions, and James Boyce points this out, they form a sound basis for a strong Christian life. Both are necessary. Who are you, Lord? That's the one a lot of people like, and they, they focus on that one question, and they, and they want to know the doctrine of the church, important and vital, and they want to dig in deeper into theology. They're the ones in the Bible studies that do have the answers, and, and, they, and they, they're thinking through them, and they're excited about theology. Uh, and others, on the other hand, only want to act. What shall I do? They say, oh, theology just divides, and so it doesn't matter. Yes, Jesus died for my sins, but now what am I to do? And so there's this division that shouldn't be there because it's not an either-or question. It's a both-and. The truth is, true Christianity begins with the first question, who are you, Lord? And, and because the person of Christ is the foundation of everything. But having established that foundation in Christ, we must go on and ask the second question, what do you want me to do, Lord? Why? And the answer is simple, because the same Jesus who saves you is the same Jesus that's working in you that you could work out his good works. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2. And so from the very beginning of his conversion, at the very start, Paul gets it right. He, he sets the example for us. He asked, who are you, Lord? And then having submitted to Jesus as Lord, he followed that up with, what do you want me to do? And without knowing it, those were the two questions that I was asking from the moment of my conversion. In fact, if we're honest and we kind of step back and just generalize a little bit, they're the same two questions we must be asking ourselves every day until the Lord returns. Who are you, Lord, growing in our understanding of who he is? And what do you want me to do now that I have that knowledge? And see, that leads us to the text this morning. Paul is now a believer. He's been a believer maybe for a few days. 
and maybe a few weeks. And in verses 19 to 31, we get a glimpse into what Paul knew at that early stage about Jesus and what he was supposed to do. See, as you turn to the text, you get a sense that things were happening fast. You see that in verse 19, for some days. And then in verse 20, we read the word immediately. And then in verse 23, we read, many days had passed. And so as you read chapter 9, you can get the impression that this all happened here in a matter of days. But that's not true. Paul gives us more details. He does that in Galatians chapter 1. He fills out what's here in Acts 9. We read there, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, there he's talking about the fact that before the foundations of the world, Paul was set apart, but it was in time when God on the Damascus road revealed his son to him um, with the purpose of what? In order that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, he says. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Verse 18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. And so, why do I share that? Well, the events described in verses 19 and 26, according to Galatians there, took place over three years. Paul's in Damascus. Then we find out he went away to Arabia for three years to learn. And then he returns to Damascus. And then from Damascus, he goes to Jerusalem. And see, what's interesting about all that and why I I share it, if you don't have the timeline down, you know, you're not lost. Uh, What's interesting is that the Apostle Paul needed preparation. He needed to be prepared. As I shared A moment ago, I was excited about the gospel. When I first got saved, I was excited. I wanted to tell people about Jesus. I wanted them to know what I experienced in Christ. But there was a lot I needed to learn. I I didn't understand it all, and so I went away to Bible college to get a foundational biblical truth understanding of the, the gospel and the scriptures. And I began to preach the gospel. And that's what the Apostle Paul did. Now, let's be clear. This doesn't mean he didn't share anything before he had those three years after being saved. Just because he needed preparation didn't mean he wasn't ready to speak about Jesus at the moment. In fact, look at verses 20 to 22. After immediately being converted and receiving his sight again, remember he lost his sight, now he has his sight, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Then we are told, And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ." And so they're, they're, they're confused, obviously, Paul, and we're going to get into that. Paul saved now, and he was killing Christians and arresting them, and now he's preaching about Jesus. And, and this is where uh, my testimony and the Apostle Paul's kind of completely part ways. I was to tell G- people that Jesus was God, that they were sinners and Jesus could save them. But Paul, we're told here, did what? I confound, I, I, he confounded them with his knowledge. 
I confounded no one. <laughs> I, I told them, look, you're going to hell, believe in Jesus. They would say, why? I was like, I don't know, the Bible said it. I, I believed it. I had conviction. But I wasn't able to prove that Jesus was the Christ in the way that Paul here, we're told, did. I believed it, but I wasn't ready to give a full answer for my faith. But here is Paul, and he does have a lot to learn, and he will go away for three years and learn these things. He'll get his seminary training, as it were. Nevertheless, what he did is he verbalizes his faith, and he began, as he began his Christian life, preaching and declaring, Jesus is the Son of God, verse 20, and now verse 22, and Jesus is the Christ. And if you were to ask, Paul, what's your confession of faith? It wasn't the Apostles' Creed completely, although that's what we base it on, Paul's beliefs. His confession of faith would have been, Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is the Christ. That's what he knew at the moment. How much of that he understood, how deeply he understood that, we're not told. But he knew more than simply stating it. When people asked me what I believe when I got saved, I would have said the same thing. I wouldn't have been able to prove it, though. And that's what Paul does. Is, that's what amazes them about Paul. Um, if all he did was make the statement, it would be the same as the way my friends responded. They laughed. Paul just made the statement. And maybe they were a little amazed because what's going on with Paul? Is he crazy? Because he didn't believe it, he was arresting people, now he's preaching about Jesus. But if that's all he did, they wouldn't be amazed, but he proved that Jesus was the Christ from where? From the Old Testament Scriptures. And so our understanding of those two phrases will come at this point in Paul's life from the Old Testament. First, Jesus is the Son of God. Only here and in Acts 13 does Luke record Saul's, Paul's teaching of Jesus as the Son of God. It, it was an important expression for, for Paul. He mentions it in Galatians, uh, and when he's talking about his uh, conversion, as well as in Romans 1. So what does Paul mean that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, many uh, liberal theologians teach that all he really meant was that he was created, Jesus was created in the image of God. Notice the focus on created. Jesus was created, and he was just in the image of God. Uh, uh, of course, he's the son of God, they would say. We're all sons of God, created in the image of God. Now, is that what Paul meant? Do you think they would have persecuted Paul, wanted him dead, if that's what he meant? There would be no argument. Everybody believed that. And so in this context, it would identify Jesus as something else, not just created in the image of God. It would identify him as the son of David. That word was used of the king in the Old Testament. And so it, Peter, I mean, excuse me, Paul is identifying Jesus as the messianic ruler who would come to establish his kingdom. But it also had another meaning, another connotation. In John's gospel especially there, it points to a relationship of deep intimacy with God. That's what it means. Jesus called God his Father throughout his ministry. Remember, he also said, I and my Father are one. And if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. 
And so that's how Paul primarily understands this in his letters. The title here, Son of God, points to the unique relationship between Jesus and God, the Father. Ultimately, what he's claiming is that Jesus is indeed God. And see, this has major repercussions for your faith. Uh, One preacher said, knowledge of spiritual things is based upon the identity of Jesus Christ as God. Well, why? Because if Jesus is the Son of God, then Jesus is God. And so if Jesus tells us something about God, if we read about it, then, then obviously it's true. Why? Because He's God. If Jesus tells us the Scriptures can be trusted, do we have to find another source to decide if it's true. No, He is God, and that includes your salvation. If Jesus was merely a man, He could not pay for your sins. He he couldn't do it. He is a man, and He had to be a man in order to die. He had to take on human flesh so He could identify with us, but He also was God, and therefore He was sinless and, and, and infinite, and He was able to bear the infinite wrath of God on your behalf. He had to be both God and man. And so Paul here is making the claim that Jesus is the divine Messiah. And no wonder they were amazed and confused. Look at verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Yeah, Paul, remember, he, he had people arrested. And why was he arresting Christians? Remember, I said it was theological. They were blasphemers. They were claiming Jesus is God. He, he had Stephen stoned to death for that. He, he was crazy. Remember, he was enraged. He was going after people. How could you lie about God like that? And now he stands up and says, Jesus is God. And, and, and so the answer to that question, um, is not this the man, is yes, that is the man. The same exact one, the same exact man who was arresting people, uh, where you laid the cloaks before him after they stoned Stephen. It's the same man who persecuted Christians. On the other hand, it's a completely different person now. It, he, he's not the same man. He's now a baptized Christian, a, a preacher of the gospel of Jesus. He's new and renewed and transformed in Christ. And see, his effectiveness at preaching and proclaiming the good news at that early stage of his walk with Jesus is pointed out by Luke here in verse 22. He increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God, and now he proves that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. They both mean anointed. And when they're referring to an individual, it, it, it it's, it's focuses on he's the anointed one. And so when Paul called him the Christ, he was saying that Jesus is the one promised in the Old Testament as the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises. Uh, Jesus was the one who's going to redeem God's people from their sins. Jesus is the one who's going to rescue God's people from his wrath. 
You see, prior to this conversation, Paul would have believed what? Like most Jews, that the Messiah that was coming, that the Jews believed in, they believed in a Messiah, and that he was coming, they would have believed he was a a political leader, a military leader that was going to free them and rescue them from the yoke of Rome. But Jesus never did that, did he? So Paul must have fought back, and he's saying, wait a minute, when I understood those passages in the Old Testament... I thought that was going to happen. Obviously, that's not true. Jesus is risen. He's appeared to me. Um, So he reflects back on this vast knowledge that he has of the Old Testament. Remember, it seems like he had the whole thing memorized. And, And now, in light of who Christ is and what Christ has revealed, he now interprets the Old Testament. And that's what he was doing in the synagogue there when they were confounded and and confused. This is how he would have proved that Jesus was the Christ to the Jews by looking at the Old Testament. He was saying to them, look, look, guys, I got it wrong. I mean, I'm just as surprised as you are. I mean, just a week ago, I was killing people for this, and, but the Messiah wasn't going to simply be an anointed king. I, I thought that, but that's not true. In fact, remember in the Old Testament, it wasn't just kings who were anointed. It was prophets and priests. And so understand, he'd be saying, look, this Jesus was not only an anointed king, he was also an anointed prophet. He was also an anointed priest. He wasn't coming to remove the Romans. He was coming to remove sin. And it all would have come back to that understanding, and he would have misinterpreted it before, but now understands it. Now, how much he understood all the details at this point is unclear, But it is clear is that these are the truths that Paul taught in those early days after his conversion. Who are you, Lord? You are the divine Son of God who came to reveal the Father to us. Who are you, Lord? You're the appointed prophet who pronounced the end of all sin. Who are you, Lord? You're the appointed priest who sacrificed himself on our behalf. Who are you, Lord? You are the king of kings who rules over our lives. That's who Paul is saying Jesus is. That's the Jesus Paul proclaimed early on in his ministry. And let me just say, he never diverted from it. He never got tired of that message. Oh, we have to move on. You know, the years have gone by. Times have changed. We have to come up with a new message. No, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ, year one. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ, year two and three, and on and on and on it went. He never grew tired of it. He never found a better message. But he did get a better understanding. He did grow in his knowledge. And it must have come during those three years in Arabia when he's taught by Jesus himself. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed. What are those many days? The many days here is the time he was in Arabia. Um. After this, what does he do? So he goes away. Well, three years of teaching, three years of training, what does he do? He returns to Damascus, and he continues preaching. He gets his training, and he continues his preaching among the Jews. You can imagine, as each day went by, Paul's getting bolder and bolder, desiring to fulfill what Jesus told him he was sent for, what he was supposed to do, preach. You're called to preach, Acts 26, to open their eyes. 
so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so Paul preached Christ. He preached the cross. He preached Christ crucified. That's what he said he came to do in 1 Corinthians. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Day in and day out, he preached the gospel, proving that Jesus was the Christ. But not all of them listened, and not all of them liked it. And so the more he proclaimed it, the angrier the Jews got, until they reached this breaking point. And he's preaching Jesus, and what happens? He, 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 he's got a plot against him now to take his life. First, they're amazed at his teaching. Now they're threatening him uh, of violence. Uh, that's the cost that Paul was going to have to face when he's following Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to Ananias? We looked at it last week when Ananias was afraid to go see Paul. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Well, Paul's beginning to see that now. They want him dead. But he finds out about the plot to kill him before they do it. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. And then verse 25, But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And Paul's life at this point is spared. Well, things are, as you can imagine, are, are, are just crazy. The Jews are frustrated, they're confused, they're angry here in Damascus. Uh, and my guess is the story spread, right? I mean, and about this new supposed Christian saw and questions and concerns, and everybody's confused. He was killing them, now he's preaching Jesus. I, I'm just confused. Um, and the news reached Jerusalem. No doubt the Jews were alarmed. They were angry as the reports came in that they lost Paul. Paul must have gone crazy. Now he's, he's supporting this Jesus. Um, and then the Christians, well, they had doubts. You know, there, maybe there's a scheme going on here. Maybe there's a plot that he's pretending to believe so we can get us all together and then arrest us and kill us. Uh, and so they weren't ready to embrace him. I mean, he's preaching and proving Christ. They weren't ready. Look at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. And so the Jews hated him. The, the disciples doubted him. Many thought he was lying. And so what has to happen here is like in Damascus. Remember when Ananias ha had to step in and clear things up for people? Well, now it's Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of the Lord. Barnabas convinced them Paul's conversion was legit, that it was real. And he went in and out among them. This is Paul, verse 28, the Christians. He went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Just think about what a blessing Barnabas was, and, and even Ananias before him for the apostle Paul. Uh, they, he, he had no home because he wasn't going to be accepted with the Jews anymore and now he's a believer and they're scared of him, don't want him and they step in to help convince others that Paul is a true brother. And so what a blessing that friendship was. In Galatians, then, 
Paul tells us that he went up to Jerusalem, where we are now in our story. And he, when he went up to Jerusalem, what does he do? We're told that he gets acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. And so he spends time with the apostle Peter, and then he goes on to say, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And so Paul now has this time of refreshing uh, among the apostles and among the saints. And we're not told the conversations. I can imagine it was a little awkward at first. I, I, I want you to, now with the background, you have a Paul and everything. Now he's going to meet the apostle Peter. And, you know, what's in the background? I, isn't that the guy, Paul, as Peter, you know, is thinking that just killed Stephen? And he's, he arrested everybody, and, but no, he's forgiven now. And Peter learned some of his own lessons, so I'm sure he it received them. But it must have been awkward. But see, that's the, the beauty of the story is that that's what the church is about. What we have here is a picture of what the Spirit of Christ does in our lives, um, bringing together believers from all different walks of life, enabling us to forgive one another when we've sinned against each other, even when someone has done harm to us, making the worst of our enemies brothers and sisters. That's what you see when Peter and Paul come together. I'm sure this was life-changing for Paul. As he says, all right, well, I didn't believe any of this. Tell me what happened, Peter. And Peter's filling him in, and he, he tells him about Jesus and all his teachings. And he says, oh, you should have seen the miracles. I'm sure Peter mentioned his denial. Now, there was that one time that, well, at the end there, I kind of acted like I didn't know him. But he forgave me. He forgave me. And maybe, maybe he mentioned, you know, I, I walked on water once. You did, and Paul says, you did, and he said, well, yeah, well, then I sunk. But, but that's, that was, I wanted to go out to Jesus at the time. And I'm sure, this is I am positive of, they had a conversation about the death and about the resurrection. And, and there's nothing sweeter for them to, to talk about than, than that moment when their sins were secured and forgiven. And there's nothing sweeter for us to talk about as believers than about our Savior, who he is and what he has done and what he has done in our lives. That's what they were doing. They were meeting and so Paul cherished this time he spent in fellowship with the saints. We should all cherish times like that. But even while he's doing that, soaking it in, he was also, quote, dishing it out. It didn't stop him from continuing his preaching ministry. Verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Now, you see that word and Let's face it, you probably care less who the Hellenists are. Well, actually, the Hellenists are the Greek-speaking Jews, the very audience that had masterminded the stoning of Stephen. And so, they are there, and Paul, who they loved, now is preaching to them about Jesus. And what happens is they give him the same treatment. They were seeking to kill him, says verse 29. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so we're beginning to see a pattern here that you'll see in the life of the Apostle Paul, at least through Acts. It'll be lived out over and over and over again. He will preach. He will be persecuted. They will threaten to kill him. He will get away, and he will preach, and he will be persecuted, and they will threaten to kill him, and then he'll keep doing it until they finally do kill him. But his whole life was given over to be a witness to Christ. That's the beginning 
of Paul's walk with Jesus. We've just covered in that quick, really fast, uh, uh, you know, overseeing that time period is three years. That's what we have here. There's other details. You can find them in Scripture. But all in all, the emphasis in Acts chapter 9 is on Paul's conversion, his immediate transformation from being a persecutor of Christians to be a persecuted Christian. Think about it. Acts 9 began with Paul on his way to Jerusalem in order to arrest fugitive Christians. And it ends with him leaving Jerusalem as a fugitive Christian. And then Luke ends this story of the beginning years of Paul with this extraordinary statement in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Many preachers have pointed out, Derek Thomas said, isn't this a beautiful verse? Think about it. After all that confusion about Paul's conversion, all the second guessing if it was real, all the turmoil and the anger and threats that we read about, after all of that, all of a sudden there's this period of supernatural peace, a period where God, as it were, restrains his enemies for a season and pours out his Holy Spirit upon his people and his church grows and it multiplies. You ask me, what, what's the secret, Pastor, of church growth? I mean, why wouldn't we be asking that at this point in our lives? Many churches are after the year and a half we've had with COVID and all the stuff and the turmoil, the transition that we just went through here. How are we supposed to grow in this type of environment? And Luke says, this is how you do it. It's not marketing. It's not a new scheme. It's not having this certain ministry or that certain ministry. The answer is they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were living out their lives regardless of the consequences in the fear of God. They were putting God first, putting God first in their lives, in their homes, in their employment, in their ministry, putting Him first where there where was when their hopes and, and with their dreams and with their ambitions, God was first. It wasn't easy. They were being persecuted. As we see, they weren't doing it in their own strength, though. They had the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That word comfort is the word paraclete. It means the Holy Spirit was the Christian's strength. He was the the Christian's helper. It's the word Jesus used when he was departing and he said, I'm I'm gonna leave you, but I won't leave you alone. I'm gonna leave you the paraclete. I'm gonna leave you your comforter, uh, the one who will help you and strengthen you. We have the same comfort. We have the same help. We, we, We have the Holy Spirit. He will help us here at our church, to build up the church. He will help us through trials. He will help us through everything, just as he did with the early church. And if he so desires to give us a time of peace and multiplication, then we will see the church grow. And so what are we to do? Well, if it's left to us, no. In the power of the Holy Spirit he provides, we walk in fear of the Lord. We put God first regardless of the consequences. They walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Oh, may that be said of us.
May it be said of us here in this church. May it be said of us in the church in America. When people who, who despise us look and say they walked in the fear of the Lord and, and, and they got their help from God himself through the Holy Spirit. And so that's the main lesson, one of the main lessons. There are several lessons here. Let me just share a couple quickly. Paul was unique. I want to make that clear. But the principles that we learn here are principles we can apply to our own lives. And so the first obvious application is that we need to know Jesus. I mean, that should be obvious. We need to know him, who he is. We need to take the time to learn. You don't have to get a seminary degree. In fact, you don't need a seminary degree today. Everything's available to you. Um, uh, This is why we have Sunday school, to help you learn. That's why we have women's studies or men's studies, to help you learn. So you could take advantage of the Word of God and growing in knowledge beyond just Sunday morning, where the sermon is, is meant to more point you to Jesus so you can exalt in Jesus than it is to teach you all the different things. Sunday school helps with that. You could also get yourself a study Bible. You want somewhere to begin? Grab a study Bible. Pick up a theology book. They have little ones. You say, oh, I can't read theology. I, uh, I, you know, I'm not a theologian. There are books that are written. I, I did. Let's put it this way. I did it. You can do it. Believe me. Um, when I started going to Bible college, I didn't know anything. I didn't know who Abraham was. Didn't know who Noah was. And I barely could read. So I was able to, to work it out. You can too. There's books. Concise Theology by J.F. Packard. It's a little book. It'll give you the knowledge you need. R.C. Sproul books, you know, The Drill. Peter says we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his letters. And so we need to grow in our knowledge. That's the first lesson. Paul did it. We need it. Second is we need to understand and embrace the church. I've said it over and over throughout this series. If you are converted, you're part of the church. Paul couldn't be the super apostle that he was in isolation. He needed a Barnabas. He needed an Ananias. He needed the time of refreshing with the brothers. He needed his brothers and sisters in Christ, and so do we. And so what does that mean? What's the application? Well, get involved in church fellowship. It just so happens that next Sunday, during Sunday school hour, I will talk to you about small groups. (laughs) You could join a small group. You could get together with friends in Christ. You can go to a prayer group. You can join us on Zoom on Wednesday night. All these things. You need to have fellowship beyond just church. Paul went to the synagogue, and he preached, but he also got refreshing from the brothers, and so we need that. And here's the final application. I'll close with this. It's not only that converts must join the Christian community, but that the Christian community must welcome converts. Not only did Paul have a new knowledge of Christ and a a new relationship with the church, he recognized that now he had a new responsibility to the world. He, he saw that. His calling was to be a witness. That's what he had to do with this knowledge, bear witness. And that's what we need to do with this knowledge, is bear witness. We must proclaim our knowledge of Christ and his gospel and defend our faith before this lost world. Even if it means persecution, there's the application. Peter, he says, we must be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. That means we have to have understanding. I had none when I first started, but that's the point. The Spirit does the work, and you can grow. If you're a Christian, you are an ambassador for Christ. You represent him to the world. I don't want to be ambassador. Well, you don't have a choice. You are one. The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? 
Uh, and you've heard this said before. Well, I'm no theologian. No, you are one. Theology is the study of God. You obviously study God. Are you a good theologian or a bad one? We're all called to do the work of an evangelist. Apostle Paul was many things. He was a top-notch student. I dare to say probably better than anybody here. I don't know you all perfectly, but he was brilliant. He was a great teacher. He was a great apostle. He was a missionary. But above all else, he was an evangelist. And he tells us in his letter to Timothy, we're all to do the work of evangelism. We must all bear witness to the gospel. It doesn't have to be in a pulpit. You don't have to stand on a street corner soapbox and start preaching. You've got to get to know someone. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Maybe you should do a little more of that. I don't know. But you need to be telling others about Jesus. You know one of the simplest ways to do this? Get to know someone and invite them to church. Or maybe you're a visitor here today, and that's why they did it. So when you leave here, say, did you invite me so I would learn about Jesus? And then hopefully, believer, you'll tell them yes and explain it. But we need to be evangelists. We need to do the work. It doesn't have to be in a formal setting. It could be over coffee with an unsaved friend. We need to tell them about Jesus, says one writer, and urge those who hear our words to repent of their sins and commit themselves to Christ. That is the good news. Remember, Paul will go away, go on to say, be imitators of me, right? We talked about that last week. You're to imitate Paul. And so we're to imitate Paul, and there's no greater way to imitate Paul than by learning the faith, living the faith, and leading others to the faith. That's what we're called to do. Call them the faith in the Son of God, faith in the divine Son, faith in the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, the anointed king, faith in the Messiah, the crucified and risen Lord. We are to lead them to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your grace, and we've heard a lot. There was a lot to swallow there, and yet, Lord, it really comes down to this. You have called us. You have converted us. You have called us to proclaim the good news, to grow in knowledge. Help us to do these things for your glory, and may we see the fruit of our labors through the conversion of many souls. Amen.